Right, so shall we talk about the Retro Hugos? There are links in the show notes. Now, I confess, I haven't read them. So my plan is... Your plan is for me to, to start this one off because I've read the links, right? Yeah, I think so. I think that makes sense. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 37th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. I'm John Coxon. I am Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. This episode is coming to you on the 5th of August 2021, but it was originally recorded over two sessions in August and September 2020. Since we are not recording this episode live, although we have had lots of lovely letters of comment, we will not be getting to them this week, but we promise we will next week. So feel free to lock this episode as well, and we will have a smorgasbord later in the year because after all listeners it is the summer of fun hope you enjoy the episode and see you all in a fortnight yeah so we previously had some discussion of the retro hugos where i think the general consensus was i'm against them Alison's against them and john thinks they're kind of neat um but there's been quite a lot of uh, extra discussion uh, from a couple of different angles that I thought was interesting, actually. So some of it took place on file 770, uh, which I read occasionally, but I don't read all the posts because there's way too many of them. And so it became apparent that I missed quite a lot of retro Hugo discussion before the World Cup. So this one, this discussion kind of hinged off the Memphis World Con announcing that they would not run the retro Hugos, which they announced as part of their statement on their commitment to diversity and inclusion. And there were a fair number of people noting, and there's some, this is something I hadn't really picked up on, that they were basically explicitly saying that we don't want to run the Retro Hugos because we think they are not favourable to our diversity and inclusion. Um, which I think is reasonable, given that there are people who feel that essentially that if we're going to have an award ceremony where we give out official Worldcon awards to people where we've just renamed another award because we don't feel there should be anything named after them is maybe not helping our diversity inclusion. But I can see how if you're a person who feels strongly about the Retro Hugos and who also feels strongly enough about the Retro Hugos that you spent quite a lot of time trying to diversify the nominees, that this does feel like you're announcing way in advance that you're not going to do the Retro Hugos um, as part of this statement. Um, and it, it kind of undermines what these people have been doing to try and get a more diverse set of nominees. And there's a couple of separate blog posts from uh, Hampus Eckerman and uh, Cora Bullet, who have been doing quite a lot of work to try and uh, find lists of nominees for the Retro Hugos each time uh, they're held. Uh, to make sure that they're really getting a view of the field, to try and give people more things to read and more options beyond just naming the people uh, that always come up because they're the names that, for whatever reason, have been passed down um, as common knowledge. Um, I hadn't really taken on board how much work people were doing to try and diversify the nominees and to try and make sure there is good information out there for people to look at because it is quite difficult I think to research some of these things in the older magazines and go through all the science fiction of 1945 and it does seem like people have been doing a lot of information gathering and reading and recommendations for this that I was not really aware of and so to have someone say no we're just not doing them we're claiming that three years in advance uh, feels like they've been doing a lot of that work for nothing. I think I like the Retro Hugos in concept. I think that there is a definite argument, and one of the arguments I've seen online is if you look at some of these slates from, say... So basically, like, the first Hugos were awarded in 1953, and if you look at the things that won in 1953, and then you look at what wins Retro Hugos around 1953, there is an obvious difference where... A lot of the things that won in 1953 are things that the modern audience would have no idea existed or has not stood the test of time um, and would not have won if it was done as a retro Hugo, which is an interesting thing. And I think the thing I've I've thought for a while is it would be much more interesting if you had the retro Hugos be a juried award 
where the jury was the winners of the um, modern Hugos in that category. So you had, like, if you wanted to award the Retro Hugos in 2020, you had the six nominees for Best Novel in 2019 be the jury. That, I think, would be a really neat way to tie it to the modern Hugos and make it clear that it's not trying to it's not trying to put ourselves in the shoes of the 1950s Hugo electorate and award what would have won the Hugo while taking out the impulse of the wider community just to give Best Editor to John W. Campbell for a year. But I will say, uh, in general... Old science fiction is shit, so you shouldn't probably read it, right? Like, new science fiction is way better. Like, science fiction properly started in about 1995, and everything before that's not really worth reading. Snow Crash is a classic that probably is exempt. <laughs> okay, so... Alison is vibrating was, with rage, listener. Vibrating with rage. That you was just... clearly, clearly a statement. Um, You just froze on a grumpy face of Alison, and it was hilarious. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> old fiction generally and old science fiction in particular, once you have got over the fact that you that every so often there's a an opinion or a an assumption made that is hugely antithetical to the way we live now is nevertheless often of considerable merit. Um and you know but that's the thing about reading historical texts. It is a matter of reading historical texts. You are doing it in a different way. Um, if you are reading purely for entertainment, you are definitely going to be better served with modern stuff. But if you're actually interested in um, concepts and ideas and the fact that so, the ways that people thought 100 years ago are not the same as the ways we think now, and that doesn't just mean because they were racist and sexist and anti-inclusionary. There are lots of good things about that as well. And you can broaden your mind by visiting the past in the same way that you can broaden your mind by visiting other countries or other cultures. Anyway, that was not the point I was going to make about the retro Hugos, because I've been waiting very patiently to say that it doesn't... Cora Bullet has argued very cogently that they've been doing all this work, that they've been trying to show the breadth of the field, that it's not just about the people we've all heard of. If you wanted that, and as John says, you, the last thing you would want to do is a popular award, okay? Popular and community awards are not good at nuance. They're not good at having everyone read everything and think hard about it. That's not what's going to happen. The, if you call it the Retro Hugos and have it um, and have a popular vote of the Hugo of the Worldcom membership, you're never going to get that nuance. It's not going to happen. And it doesn't matter how much work you put in to making the nominee list interesting. Um, people are still going to vote for name recognition and they're not going to bother to read your nominees either before they do it um some people will but the majority of voters won't and it's all you could have a juried award but i feel like the hugos are ineluctably a popular award the hugo's been awarded to a load of crappy things over the over its time that's kind of what the hugo is and it's not always going to go to the best thing because it is a popular award and popular awards never do um so if you want to have an award for old science fiction though i can't think of one absolutely any reason why you would do that then by all means go ahead and do one but it shouldn't be called the retro hugos and it shouldn't be anything to do with the rest of the hugos or the world con it's it's just a nonsense i yeah anyway i despair Liz, do you despair? Uh, I, I don't. I think I'm naturally predisposed not to despair too much. Uh, certainly not about Retro Hugo's. I, I agree with Alison that Cora Bulet's brog is uh, very cogent. And actually, I think you'd be interested in it, John, because I think it makes a good argument about why you should read older uh, science fiction and fantasy. And also makes an argument that what you may have read is what has been placed in the canon maybe by people at the time or shortly afterwards and maybe what they canonized is not what is most interesting about the science fiction of that time to a modern audience so that i found very interesting actually and there are a bunch of stories she links in there that i'm quite interested to go and read um but i i also agree with alison that a popular vote award is probably never going to do what we want it to in this arena and having it be not a popular vote award makes it not the retro hugos 
because it makes it not the Hugos. So, and I think this, the second argument here is um, Nicholas White, the Hugo administrator for Conzealand, has posted some more details about the nominations for the retro Hugos. And what he says is there were two categories where we allowed the final ballot to proceed with one finalist who had received only three nominating votes. In cases where the final ballot would have had to include more than one eligible finalist with three or fewer nominating votes, we determined the category was not sufficiently supported by voters to proceed. And I think that is an incredibly low threshold to be giving awards on. What we're saying is if you've got three people to nominate something, then as long as we had sufficient nominees with three or more votes, then that was enough to run the category. And I think if we are going to do retro Hugo's, um, and given that they do seem to be an awful lot of time and effort and money, we should definitely restrict them only to categories where there seems to be a genuine interest. And I think I would have to say a genuine interest means more than three people thought someone should be on the ballot. I think in general that having the barrier for a the, the blah having the retro hugos be awarded to things the hugo electorate think are worth awarding makes sense and saying that that means that more than three people had an opinion on who should be on the ballot probably also makes sense i think those are both imminently reasonable i don't know what the actual threshold should be um i haven't done enough research into the actual nominations and stuff to to have a qualified opinion on that um but but yeah i think that does make a lot of sense i think the problem here is that if you want like Cora Bulet's article is very interesting. Cora Bulet in her post says that she is um, equally frustrated by the fact that retro Hugo voters vote for familiar names like John W. Campbell and weak early stories by future stars of the genre over better works because she is also frustrated by that. And so to combat that, she started the retro Hugo recommendations sheet and retro science fiction reviews to help potential nominators. I think that's very laudable. I think what it ignores completely is that people... It's not the... The people voting for John Double Campbell aren't doing it because they um, are like, well, I don't really know anyone, but John W. Campbell, I've heard of him, I'll vote for him. I think a lot of the people voting for him are voting for him because they think he was a titan of the genre that deserves recognition. And I think the problem is that if you think those people are wrong in a popular award it's not enough to say well I'll, I'll make it clear there's a load of other options you actually have to have the arguments and so she's saying like i'm very frustrated by this and here is the action i have taken but but notable in its absence from her blog post is she has not argued with people and she has defended the retro hugos from criticism and gotten frustrated with people criticizing them because she's like well educate yourself and vote and it's like i don't i think this by and large misses an awful lot of the truth that in a popularly awarded award you can't do it by just saying oh people should just be more educated that doesn't work because that's not how popular awards work if you want it to be a more educated award that that surfaces more of the genre it needs to be a juried award and the problem with the juried award that has the hugo award um, name is how you make a juried award that does have the hugo award name while keeping it in the spirit of the hugo awards which has always been the award awarded by the Worldcon. the only way i can think of doing that is to have it be reflective of the nominee sorry the finalists for hugo awards and what they think should be recognized from the past because i think that links to the Worldcon fandom and the hugo awards nicely and is a juried award and so i think you could make a case that that is a good way of doing it that doesn't um occlude the tradition of the hugo awards but also doesn't run into the problems that are being discussed here but, but i just don't really see her argument that you can make a spreadsheet of all the nominees and that'll help i'm just like i don't think it does i'm sorry i agree with you and but i also think that a juried award juried by recent hugo winners sounds like an amazing idea and if you decide you'd like to take that through the Wusfus business meeting as a suggestion i will bring popcorn <laughs> i thought you were going to second it alison bringing popcorn is much less helpful i am not going to second it i think i think it's pointless i think they should be scrapped i think hugo administering is a lot of work already and it's twice as much work and i think it's a magnet for dissent and disagreement that that is wholly unnecessary and i think 
as I've said before on Retro Hugos, I'm pretty sure the fundamental nature of the Retro Hugo is fatally flawed because it is actually wrong to say the Hugos were not awarded in year X. So we will put ourselves, the modern Worldcon community, in the role of the Worldcon community of 1943 and, and make awards. And I just feel that's a bad and wrong thing to do um, because we are actually denying their their personhood and their community, partly because we don't like it. And I had one more point, which you might or might not want to edit out, which is that I spend a lot of time, I am older than you guys, and I spend a lot of time talking to people on the internet who are a lot older than me. And I think quite a few people who are voting in the Retro Hugos are doing so on the basis of what was very exciting when they were 13 years old and were reading pulp magazines. And and that is a problem that is creating some inertia in the Retro Hugos that is probably not get overable. You know, having just said, oh, we shouldn't put anything on the ballot, which has only three people supporting it. The numbers in the regular Hugos are not incredibly high. And there are people and works on the ballot with nominations in the 20s. But I still think that is a significant leap. So I don't know where I would put the floor for the retro Hugos. But I, if I was Hugo administrator, which fortunately will never happen, I would probably chop it off at a, a higher bar of this is not a, a category you can run. I mean, obviously, you can't really run things like best semi prosine and best fan cast unless you can find a lot of radio shows and things like that. But I, I might be harsher on chopping things out. I was going to say that on John's idea of having the Hugo finalists do this, um, I think the question is, how would you decide what material from that year the Hugo finalists have to read to do the jury award? Because I think if you went to many of the current Hugo nominees and said, right, what I want you to do now is read the entire output of like Astounding in 1945, this would not go down particularly well. Presumably that is a thing that has been solved for other juried awards. I imagine that the people who judge the clerk don't have to read like every... They don't each have to read every single book that was released in the year, right? Because that would be more... They, they would have to read constantly for a year without sleeping, and that seems unlikely. Most most juried awards are submission-based. So the publishers pay to submit a book to the clerk... And they end up with a number of books. Ah, okay. And that's how you get around the problem. At which point the jurors do indeed read them all. But I think they kind of read the first couple of chapters. And if it's an obvious stinker, they do not carry on with it unless one of the other jurors says, um, this is a book that deserves your attention. I understand this how it works. When you've got 80 to 100 books, then you just have a sort of lower threshold of saying, no, I've read 100 pages. This is a stinker. I'll put it to one side unless everyone else loves it, because in the end, you're only going to pick six. Any one juror could say, no, I'd like everyone to read this one, please. Well, and I think and I think the other thing is obviously like there is no reason that you couldn't have this be on the basis of um, if it receives a nomination, it goes on the list of things to read. Um, or you could have some cut off above a nomination if that ended with an implausibly high number of things to read. Um, but presumably, there are clearly people who are seeking out and nominating the stuff that is actually good versus the stuff that is famous. And so there is presumably some way of, of doing that so that you mean that the vetting process doesn't have to be the finalist. It's only the jurying process that is. Um, I confess I don't. I just had this idea now. I haven't like thought through all of the mechanics and it might be that it completely doesn't work. But I do, in general, I think it is worthwhile, despite what I said earlier about like old science fiction being not worth reading, I think it is in general good to recognise like the stuff that was good of yesteryear. And I don't necessarily think that the Retro Hugos is a bad framework in which to do that. I just think that you have to decide what you want the output of that framework to be. And if you want it to be a nuanced look at the forgotten gems of the genre, having it be a popular awarded vote is clearly not going to achieve that goal. Um, one other argument that Beulett makes in her blog post is that she notes a lot of the people complaining are actually angry about the um, Hugo ceremony and Martin's Toastmastership, and they are not actually really angry about the, the retro Hugos. I am not sure to what extent that is true, but I would be interested to see 
how much discussion there was on Twitter about the Retro Hugos, like, in between them being awarded and Martin toastmastering the regular hugos it would be it would be interesting to see whether it ramped up afterwards but i don't really know how you do that um but the impression i had was that people were complaining um even before martin was toastmaster they were but not very much they were just kind of isn't it weird that we're still um giving awards to these men whilst also stripping their names off our awards And I will say, like, I have read, like, I've just bought a lot of old um, Lovecraft mythos fiction. So I've bought the three um, volumes uh, from the Penguin Classics collection of Lovecraft's work. I've bought the, um, I've bought the Robert E. Howard collection from Penguin Classics. And I've bought the Clark Ashton Smith collection from Penguin Classics. So, like, I am currently embarking on a big old romp through the classic Cthulhu mythos. Um, and I've read um, I read The King in Yellow uh, by Robert Chambers, which is fantastic. Really, really, really good. Stands up really well. Um, so I will say, like, I'd be slightly sarcastic. I just, I'm always suspicious of the logic that everyone should have read, like, all of the classics. Because I'm like, read the classics that are interesting and don't read the ones that aren't. There's no, you don't have to do homework when you're reading for leisure. It's fine. Yes, that's right. You, you you can't, when people say read all the classics, they're essentially gatekeeping. And sometimes they do it for the best reasons. Um, but when you're old, you go, oh, but I understand that because I was there and I lived through it. And that is not necessarily useful to anyone who is not old. It does not mean that they should have had all of the experiences that you, you, that you did, because it is not possible for them to have had that set of experience. This actually came up when I was talking to my sister-in-law yesterday. Um, on Valentine's Day a few years ago, I can't remember what year it was, um, Espanya and I went to see Casablanca at the local cinema because they had a Valentine's Day showing of Casablanca. And I'll say two things about having gone to see Casablanca. The first of which is I understand an awful lot more about cinema now that I have seen that one film because the amount that later cinema borrows from that film is quite large and the amount of cultural references made to that film is quite large. And I feel like I have an awful lot more jigsaw pieces to... Um, there are conversations where people say things and I'm like, oh, I understand what that means now because I've seen the movie you're referencing, which is a famous movie that people often reference. And it's a bit like people would, when people say, I haven't seen Star Wars or I haven't seen Aliens. And I'm like, you don't have to. I'm not saying you have to. But what I am saying is that there are things people are saying around you that you don't know what they mean because you haven't seen them, uh, which may be fine. It, and it's not important. You're not like missing. You're not going to not notice the wife's left you or that your boyfriend's proposing if you haven't seen Aliens, probably I can't think of any examples where that would be true. But what I will also say is Casablanca's fantastic. Uh, really, 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 really enjoyed it. Will also say I was the only person laughing at the jokes because everyone else was there to respect a serious classic film. And I was there to watch a movie on its own merits. And Casablanca is a funny movie that you should laugh at the jokes in. It's quite a funny film. I've seen it. I've seen it more than once. And there were just a lot of people sitting there po-faced. And I was like, he just did a joke. Why are we not? The, it was weird people have this reverence for classics that there are classics that don't work as modern entertainment because they are too far away from from what we recognize as modern entertainment or classics that don't work as modern entertainment because they are not to your taste and you're forcing yourself to read them because you think you ought to out of some weird sense of obligation to the canon but what this also means is that people don't let themselves enjoy the classics when they're enjoyable which i find bizarre uh, so I have a really complicated opinion and and relationship with old art because I don't really I think if you're going to go and see something for me I do that because I think it might be good in modern terms and I don't tend to read the stuff that I think will be crap um, or more accurately I don't tend to engage with the stuff I think I won't enjoy which is probably more sensible. But yes, I I want to respond to that with two things. The first is that I discovered. That brief encounter, which I had never seen, was on YouTube. And I thought, oh, you know, I should watch this. And I watched about the first two minutes of it. And it was so 
fantastically it's not the first two minutes but the first the setup probably about the first six or seven minutes and it was so fantastically good i thought right i'm gonna stop this i'm gonna watch this on my television with my daughter who will also enjoy it and and we did watch it and it's fantastic you should see it but also it's very influential and also some of the things in it are not at all quite what i expected them to be um and and I had obviously a lot of received information about what happens in Brief Encounter, not all of which is correct, um, because these classics have kind of permeated our world. But the other thing is that I've just started to watch for the first time um, one of the most influential works of the last 30 years, which is Father Ted. Um, and I don't know whether it's any good or not, but I do know that for much of my adult life, people have been quoting bits of it at me. Um, and and in fact, the, a set of stamps um, celebrating Father Ted has just been released in Ireland. Um, and I thought it might be time to watch it before it completely descends beyond the pale. I observed the stamps while having many good quotes that I knew from the series like it's an ecumenical matter do not include small and far away or or um ask feck girls drink ask feck girls which i thought were were very memorable quotes from the series that i've not seen i don't think i'm ever going to be able to watch it because whenever i um think about graham linehan's art i think about graham linehan and then i want to punch things okay so i'm not going to stop using gil sands and i'm not going to stop the difference is that gil is dead Graham Linehan still has a huge following on Twitter. I think when he dies, I might be able to come back to it. But think? for now, it just makes me too cross. The death of the author is a lot easier when the author is dead, which is surprisingly coherent, both in a metaphorical and a literal sense. That's quite clever, isn't it? Um, I mean, I'm quite proud of that. You know, that's quite good. Um, but yeah, so so I, I am I am not going to stop using Gil Sands. No, but I, I, I take the point. I do take the point. No, I mean, I have I have some Father Ted DVDs that I have bought in charity shops because I'm clever, but I, um, I haven't watched them. I d- I d- it's not that I don't think you can enjoy the output of horrible people. Um, he says, having recently purchased an awful lot of H.P. Lovecraft fiction, uh, and H.P. Lovecraft, as we all know, uh, problematic in the, uh, to say the least. I think we say racist, John. So, so readers, write in, listeners, write in and tell us, should I wait to watch Father Ted until... Graham Linehan is dead or should I watch it now so I can catch up with the jokes my friends have been making for 25 years in Lovecraft's defense Liz he wasn't only racist he was incredibly sexist as well it's true he was of his time he wasn't of his time his wife left him because of how objectionable he was for his time he was an odious racist sexist twat even in the early 20th century and you're obsessed with his product well, no, I'm obsessed with, with the FFG's take on it, which does an awful lot to reclaim the sexism and racism and make it not that. Um, but this is a discussion that comes up in, in the Arkham community every once in a while. And there was always the hardcore saying, oh, but he was, he, he was from the old days. Everyone was like that. No, 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 they weren't. That's, that, that is, that is number one rule of old racist and sexist that not everyone was like that. Alison, I can't remember how old you are, but I don't think Graham Linehan is that much older than you are. So even assuming that you have a slightly longer life expectation, um, as a woman, I would probably uh, watch it now rather than watch it when you're on your deathbed. <laughs> Do you think I should not watch it at all because of him being a dick? I think it's hard to say because I watched it. He's and- younger than me, the fecker. Sorry, <laughs> we'll do that again. He's younger than me, the fecker. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I think it's hard to say because I watched it multiple times i think and loved it but i haven't seen it for several years and i'm not sure now if i rewatched it whether i would feel it had been permanently tainted by linen i guess i'd have to try and rewatch some to decide but mostly mostly i've been rewatching the father ted christmas special every christmas for a few years because it's on 27 times every christmas i just i just want to say like i'm not saying alison shouldn't watch father ted i'm saying that it makes me angry which is not a that's not a reason not it's not a reason for other people you should feel free to watch father ted because it will not make me angry if you do it's just that i feel angry about graham linehan and so i avoid things that remind me that i am angry about him which is slightly i think a slightly more nuanced take i hope you know how we were talking about the retro hugo's originally (laughs) i was gonna say one 
benefit of kind of decoupling this effort of people to go and reevaluate the science fiction of the past and put a lot of effort into saying which ones are still worth reading and which ones maybe are less worth reading. Um, if we decouple it from the retro Hugos, then there's no reason you can't just keep doing it. The problem with the retro Hugos as the, the hook for it is we've nearly finished doing the retro Hugos. There's like three years left to go. There's no reason why you couldn't say, right, we want to have this general effort to get people to read and reevaluate the science fiction of 50 years ago and to have it as some kind of group effort and award something if you want to. But you could keep going. Maybe we need to introduce the retro retro Hugos where we go back to years where the Hugos were awarded and do them again properly. <laughs> that could be interesting as like a break off. Properly. Yeah. I think I said that with a straight face. Yes. <laughs> Um, yes, so we were discussing um, reading older works of genre in light of the Retro Hugo Awards. And one thing that has kind of become apparent is that sometimes in today's modern world, one can end up in a situation where one needs to have a think about the extent to which the attitudes of a creator behind a piece of art one likes affects one's enjoyment of that art so we've already discussed um graham linehan and father ted in light of his recent um discussions on on twitter um and there are other myriad examples um so do either of you have kind of instances in which something you are a fan of has turned out to be the work of someone who you might not personally be a fan of well yes good yeah, I mean, that was not the perfect open question, John. <laughs> I was hoping you might just not say yes. <laughs> I, but I will hold up my hands. I should have done a bad job. I do actually... I, I remember the first time I discovered that this was a thing because I was a great fan of a YA author called Jan Mark who wrote a number of excellent science fiction stories for um, for young adults. I mean, that are actually quite stretchy and i was a young adult at the time or i mean not a child which is what we but you know i was kind of in my early 20s and she came to one of the mexicons and turned out to be really pretty ghastly in a number of respects um i was i was quite taken aback because we didn't have the internet at the time so you you didn't know whether the people whose stuff you liked were nice or not but and she wasn't kind of horrible in a kind of I have horrible views on the internet way because we don't didn't have the internet then. She just was kind of not very nice in person. And um, I think I hadn't really addressed this question of whether you should um, divorce people's work from how they are as a person. Um, death of the author, when we talk about it, normally means more generally the question about whether you should take the art as it stands or take into account the, th the things that the author has said about that art. Um, so it's not just about whether the author is somebody who you would not want to spend any time with. But I, I mean, what I took from that was, of course, I should ignore what people are like as humans when enjoying their work. And I have mostly tried to do that ever since. Um, but actually, there's some really horrid people out there. Um, and feel free to not read any more Harry Potter books. Um, I, I like Harry Potter even less than I like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if that's helpful. So um, one of the really like so so recently we were having a discussion in a in a Discord somewhere. We were having a discussion about um, I, I was disappointed that Retro Hugo's had not been awarded for 1939 because um, it would have been a good chance to um, give or to nominate The Enchanted Wood, which is the first in the Faraway series by Enid Blyton. It's like, it's the first book I remember reading as a kid, and, I, and I've always had an enormous amount of, enormous amount of affection for it. And obviously Enid Blyton is like a very, very divisive figure in terms of her frequent use of gollywogs in her stories, and like, her stories are... Um, overtly sexist um, because obviously you have George who has a sh short hair and is therefore a top boy and wants to be a boy and then people keep telling her she can't be as good as a boy because she's a girl and it's like you know I don't know 
the extent to which that reflected the thinking at the time versus the extent to which that reflected specifically Blyton's thinking. Um, but it's certainly not a opinion anyone should hold in modern times. And those books are still selling um, and have been edited, like revised to make them slightly less egregious. But um, but it's still potentially a problem. Um, and, and certainly one of the things was, but, but, you know, Blyton was famously sexist and racist. So she probably shouldn't be awarded or or um fated by the community um and it's really interesting because i hadn't really thought about blighton's um the problematic nature of her i haven't read her books since i was a kid um and it does it does really reflect like to me those books weren't ever about what she thought they were about like the stories in them and i really did kind of jar because obviously as an adult i read things with the bearing in mind what the author is trying to say and, and kind of like who the author is as a result um, but as a kid I didn't really read like that and so yeah it was a bit of a kind of oh yeah I guess that's true um, I mean I still I still think the faraway tree books are amazing um, but I haven't read them for 20-25 years now so perhaps I am wrong good plan um, yeah I mean that's the thing isn't it I mean especially when you're rereading like children's books as an adult I, I'm not sure that I would benefit from doing that um Liz how has your affection for works been ruined by learning more about the world hmm <laughs> just thinking out of premise. so like you I read an awful lot of Enid Blyton as a child um and the one thing I remember that really kind of I see in a different light now is there's a, a set of books called um, The Secret Something. So they start off with The Secret Island where they run away and uh, hide on an island. And I remember they end up with a cow in a cave. But the main thing is that there is one called The Secret Mountain um, where they accidentally like crash land in a remote part of Africa and, you know, go and befriend a tribe. And the way they do it... I remember something like they they remember there's going to be an eclipse and so they pretend to get out a gun and shoot the sun and you know the 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 people there are so amazed by it and so terrified by it that they you know um let them go and you know when I read it when I was probably you know eight or nine I just read it without blinking but now of course it's it's a ridiculously stereotyped view of Africa as a place you know where these um you know, primitive tribal people live, which is completely wrong. So I, I don't know quite where I'm going with that. And but like, was that completely the... wrong then. I think exactly. I, I I think this is when you're thinking about death of the author, because obviously some of the things here are historical works that you're reading in context, and you you do draw a distinction between. Um, well, I draw a distinction between. Um, so Kipling is often criticised for this sort of thing, but Kip- Kipling was very much reflecting a his his depictions of both africa and india are quite nuanced in many ways but also he was reflecting um the the mores of his time and then other things like oh is it tintin in the congo <laughs> tintin in the congo is the racist one terrible even if they were brand new you know they and and so there is a thing about when you're looking at historical things um People who are writing in their time will often write things that you look at now and go, oh, well, that's that's extraordinary. It's extraordinary that anyone could have had those thoughts. Um, but when you're sort of reading as an adult, you should be able to set those thoughts into context. Um, it's re- you know, I've, I've talked about this before, I think, possibly on the podcast about reading, um, reading the Roman philosophers. And and how at one point they'll be writing something that completely resonates with the way we think today. And then in the next point, they'll be um, talking about the proper way to admonish your slaves. And, <laughs> and, and, and it, it moves seamlessly from one to the other. And you, you just have to kind of be able to say, oh, but that is a thing. That is a thing that is a way that our thinking has changed. Um, I always wonder when I'm when I'm reading people complaining about um, this sort of thing, whether it hasn't occurred to them that our thinking might change back. And historically, it will change back. Humans don't aren't endlessly progressive. Yes. No, and I think I think um, I don't know 
it's difficult like i know that i know that this is this is often used as a defense of people like oh they were you know they were a product of their time and i think that it's true you do have to bear that in people mind vary. Uh, and I, but i do also think that there is a tendency to use that as an excuse not to interrogate the problematic aspect aspects of works sometimes and i think you've got to be careful to use that as a way of interpreting the text without forgiving it um if that makes sense and i think you know um i think in terms of like the three of us like where we say oh but that was like reasonable for the time we're not saying and that means it should be read uncritically now um but i know i've seen people in some internet fora being like yeah but it was fine then so just don't think about it and it's like no those two things are actually separate arguments which are not um as not are not a good argument for each other um when i when i first read the harry potter books i was starting to become concerned by representations of slavery in fantasy and science fiction which is something that has continued to concern me don't know whether i've talked about it here but whenever you're reading a genre book you well i feel as well as thinking what what role do women have in this in this work which is the thing that drives me so bananas about the mcu um it's not the only thing but the other thing is how is the work getting done and the answer in a lot of fantasy is oh, it turns out we have some slave class that does all the work, and that's not good. And the answer in a lot of science fiction is, um, it turns out that AIs are doing all the work, and which is a slave class, and that's not good. And when I first read Harry Potter, which, is a book, which are books intended for children, I, re- I think it was about, I read about the first four, and then I said to a friend of mine who was very knowledgeable in the field, But there is a slave class in this book. There are happy slaves. And I don't like books with happy slaves in them. Um, And my knowledgeable friend said, look how good a writer Rowling is. And look at the way in which she has brought these disparate elements. This is clearly something that she has introduced to the novels in order that it will be turned around by the end of the arc. And anyway, I'm here to say in 2020, no, it wasn't. And no, she didn't. And... You need to be every time there's every time there's a slave class in a book designed for children, you need to go, what is this saying? What does this person mean? It is not convenient to say, oh, we have happy slaves or women or or AIs who do all the work quietly so that the important characters get get on with the plot. Um, the, the work has to get done. And if it's not getting done, there is a thing that is wrong with your books. No, and I do think in general, like the problem that that I think that the problem with Rowling in a lot of ways, and I'm kind of ignoring for a moment the recent problems with Rowling, is that I think for a while she wanted to be seen to be much more progressive than her works actually were. Stuff like saying Dumbledore was gay or saying like Hermione could be black all felt like unearned things that she had just decided oh yeah like if i just say that's true now without having done anything to substantiate it i'll get all the plaudits for being progressive without actually having to have made any progressive um concessions in my work and i think what we're now seeing is that she is not as progressive as many people wanted her to be but i i don't i was always highly skeptical of the fact okay so so nobody is progressive as many people would want them Sure, but you knew what I meant, so it was a fine sentence. I do. Um, the, but I think what we're finding now is that, or sorry, I think what I'm finding now is that my scepticism about her attitudes towards social progress um, and whether or not she was actually um, just kind of hitching her um, riding a bandwagon versus actually reflecting things she thought in her works, I think I was right to be a bit sceptical of that because it does turn out that perhaps she's not um her works i think reflect how she thinks and i think other people interpret them and say oh this could be true she's like yeah why not that doesn't hurt the narrative but i I think it's almost like the author trying to make the work look more progressive than it is as opposed to it's sort of almost in opposition to the author's views outside the work tarnishing your view of the work if that makes sense and then obviously recently she's kind of turned out to be a bit more transphobic than one would ideally want a 
writer of hugely popular children novels to be. I think it's progressiveness. Um, so, so there is a kind of there is an issue with people on the internet and particularly on Twitter expecting everybody that they like to be perfect and people are not in fact perfect and Rowling has many good points like for example um, she's given a lot of money away and she's relentless in her support of um, progressive economic policy and um, supporting um, actual left-wing politicians and things like that and all of this is quite good and like many she's not that old but like many older women who um have an understanding of the history of feminism particularly in the history of feminism in britain they've got some they've got a transphobic edge and that's where that's coming from um who knows if she'll come to her senses i suspect probably won't but there we go um but i think it's quite odd to say oh people have to be perfect at everything before we'll um before we'll say we still like their stuff. I think my main feeling is that there is kind of more stuff out there for me to watch and read and engage with than I will ever get to. And I think it is perfectly legitimate if people want to say, actually, I don't want to read this person's books. I think this person has views I find uh, abhorrent. And that is basically fine with me i think we all get to choose what what we engage with and if that's your reason for not engaging with it then i'm completely fine with it if you decide that you don't want to read harry potter books or you never want to read the cormoran strike books because of things jk rowling has said then that's okay with me i do find it difficult when people who make works i really like later on turn out to have been in some way just terrible people um I think the latest example of this was uh, Shane Carruth, who has, you know, made Primer, a film I like very much, um, but then then basically sort of leaked, kind of leaked in a, in a tweet with a picture of an album in. He left a piece of paper in there, what must be deliberately leaking the fact that his um, ex-girlfriend had a restraining order against him as her new film was coming out, um, which is just a really icky thing to do. And kind of makes you think a lot less of him. And it makes me, I think, now less interested in what works he will make next. But I'm not sure it makes me less... I'm not sure it makes me like the films he's already made less. No, and that's... I think that's fair because I think... And I think this is, like, a thing I think we need to get... I think something that it will be healthy if we can arrive at is a way of forgiving ourselves for liking things that are problematic in a way that doesn't mean we no let me i am worried that sometimes we alienate alienate people who like things by saying you're not allowed to like that thing because the person who did it is an idiot and they're like but i like the thing so i'm going to ignore you and i do think that it will be good um people do i think there is a benefit to being able to say I appreciate you like this thing, and I'm not judging you for like this thing, but I do think you should think about the fact that the person who did it is a cockwomble, and, um, you know, you might want to, um, you might want to think about, like, what it means to financially support them and stuff without saying, but that, while still saying, but that doesn't mean you can't like the thing you like. Because I think if someone says, you can't like that thing, and you like the thing, your initial reaction is, well, go away. Whereas if you say, you could like that thing, and that's fine, but, like, there's this other thing that maybe you should consider... Perhaps that's like a good way of getting people into thinking about um, these issues in a way that's less confrontational. So perhaps that's actually like a healthy thing. But I'm also um, open to the um, kind of counter suggestion that if you say, well, it's fine to like things that are made by problematic people, then that does open the door to continuing to financially support those problematic people in a way that may not actually help social progress in any meaningful way. So it is a it's a really, yeah. really, really difficult tightrope, I think. Um, and it's really, really hard. And so I, I do sympathize with you, Liz, because like there are people who are problematic who made stuff I like, as we've discussed. Um, I love I love the book Ender's Game. I do not love the author of the book Ender's Game. Um, there are things in Ender's Game that I realized were problematic after I learned more about the author of the book Ender's Game. But like that's that's true of all of Card's writing that I really, really liked a lot of his early short stories and some of his early novels and I 
again, I benefited hugely from there not being an internet at the time because I had read a lot of card before I realized how generally odd he was as a person. And then once you know that, it is actually hard to reread this stuff without bearing that in mind. He is someone whose worldview colors his work to a degree that's, I, I mean, I can't believe I didn't notice it in the first place, to be honest, but there you go. I I wasn't a very subtle reader. I probably still not. That's fair. No, I didn't. I didn't notice. There are things where people are like, but how do you not notice this? And I'm like, well, now you've said it out loud and linked it like that. I see that it's a problem. But at the time, I was just like, oh, this has lasers in. That was the secret episode out of time of Octothorpe, the podcast. Uh, but for now, it is goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. <laughs> I think that probably wraps it up, right? We, we appear to have been recording for an hour and 51 minutes. And there's cricket on later, so I've uh, got to start getting my... Uh, got to start getting my cricket... cricket mood. I was quite amazed by how much I enjoyed the cricket when I watched it. I happened to be in a house where the cricket was on. I kind of enjoy watching it... I enjoy watching it when it's on, and I think you're kind of like... It's on and you potter about doing other stuff and maybe you chat to people as well and then there'll be like a flurry of excitement and then you go back to other things. The fourth day of the first test? Against Pakistan. Against Pakistan, it was absolutely riveting throughout from the beginning to the end. There was no, there wasn't really any time apart from lunch and tea when you might have done something else because it was, it was extraordinarily good, <laughs> you know. This was my realization in the two, 2005 Ashes. I, I sort of, I was vaguely aware of cricket, and I thought it might be something I could be a fan of, but I hadn't really thought much about it. And then I watched, and then I, I decided I was going to put the cricket on at eleven and just watch until I got bored. And at six p.m., I got up and thought, oh, I should probably eat something. And I think for me, there is something about the asymmetry of the game and the way that the strategy unfolds over such a long time that just makes it riveting in a way that other sports don't do for me i think it might be the same reason i really like board games because i liked netrunner and that was an asymmetrical board game and i liked it a whole lot and i do wonder whether cricket scratches a lot of those same itches but in with sexy men uh so yeah not that quinn's from shut up sit down isn't a sexy man because um and matt lee's Sorry, what's that got to do with... I'm just daydreaming about sexy men now, Alison. Oh, well, that seems perfectly reasonable. I am I was watching Black Panther, speaking of sexy men, and I was like, why? Why are they doing this ritual combat by the edge of a waterfall? <laughs> and, and, and Marianne was like, because it makes them wet, mum. Yeah, I'm going to go and watch the bicycle racing, which is... Good if you like also men sexy. with a very particular body shape and extremely bad tan lines. I don't like, I find, because Australia, Aussie rules football, the men were really lovely. And I think it's because it's a very good whole body workout. Cycling, they're not quite my type. Um, but I do like cy cycling. another thing that, that some people think is boring. And I'd watched kind of highlights of cycling and found it boring. But then if I go and watch the Tour de France, I find it, it's completely fine. So I can watch it for hours and hours and hours and hours. That is indeed what I'm going to do this evening while John watches the cricket. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin McLeod and Combatech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.